no one makes magic in business like Disney. Join us as we hear from Disney cast members, influencers, and enthusiasts to uncover the secrets of what it takes behind the scenes to make Disney such a successful and well-loved brand. We will hear their journeys, inspirations, and have some good old-fashioned Disney fun along the way. So relax, pull up a chair, be our guest, and let's get down to Bibbidi Bobbidi Business. Hello, and welcome to a very magical live streamed episode of Bippity Boppity Business. Today, I am so excited to welcome our very special guest. Before I bring him on the stage, I'd love to tell you a little bit about him. Theron Skies was always fascinated by the power of storytelling, and it would make sense because he was a Disney Imagineer. So it's probably good that he's always been enamored by the artist story and brand and all of that. And from what I could guess, I feel like as a kid, he would probably loved nothing more than to be swept away into a new world by watching movies or reading exciting novels. And I think that this is something that as adults, we tend to forget. We tend to forget that excitement, that wonderment, that infusion into story and narrative as we grow and we develop our personal brands, our businesses. But this fascination for Theron never went away. I feel that it led him to pursue the career in Disney Imagineering that he did, where he learned how to create immersive brand experiences that delighted customers and impressed businesses with his innovative ideas. And from his time at Disney, it inspired Theron to even grow further, grow his storytelling and all of his skills into the consulting business that he currently has called Creative Design Studios. And he's traveled around the world inspiring so many people with his work by infusing storytelling and wonder into each part of the client experience and the final work that he delivers. Whether it's creating an enchanting theme park for a family vacation or experience or designing interactive Active retail experiences that has, has drawn shoppers from all over the world. Theron's passion for creating magical moments definitely shines through everything that he does. He's ha- he has over 30 years of experience leading multidisciplined cross-functional teams for both domestic and international projects. And his, his story, his creativity is something that I am so excited to share with all of you today. So without further ado. Welcome, Theron Skies. Hi, good morning. <laughs> what a buildup. Holy cow. <laughs> right. We had to put a little bit of suspense in there. <laughs> Theron, how are you doing this, this lovely day? <laughs> I'm doing awesome. Thanks so much, Rita, for inviting me to your great podcast. Fantastic. Theron, I just got to get right into it. When did you discover your passion for storytelling? Is my 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 legend that I expressed, my theory, <laughs> my myth, is it true? <laughs> of course. Yes, it is. Because I think as children, we really are, we have the freedom to explore and to invent worlds in our minds. And um, I grew up in a generation where you know, we played outdoors all the time. We rode bikes, we climbed trees, uh, we rode in vehicles without seatbelts, right? I mean, <laughs> we, <laughs> yes. we, you know, I, I remember um, this thing called an encyclopedia, uh, and it was actually a book with all the knowledge of the world printed inside of it. And I remember being fascinated with looking up things like ships. And in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it had all these great images of ships. And I remember putting paper over and tracing and drawing it. And um, I I would have to say the uh, point that I remember back to uh, the most, uh, and this is cliche, so forgive me, was Star Wars. When the original Star Wars came out in 1977, a hint about my age, I was 10. Uh, Well, it's not cliche. It is bippity-boppity business. We're kind of cornball express over here. So yes, tell me about the Star Wars experience and the the wonderment behind it. (laughs) Well, it was so cool. And for those of you that, you know, have ever seen a movie or read a book that just captured you, it was so different. Uh, The way George Lucas filmed it and everything, it was just such a different experience. I remember seeing it multiple, multiple times and thinking to myself, I don't know what that is, but I need to do that with my life. And, uh, and what I, of course, found out later, as you so aptly described, it was storytelling. 
And storytelling is done through so many different mediums. It was really fun in my career to explore all of the different ways to tell stories. Yeah, that's something that really interested me when we last spoke. I asked you genuinely, what does an Imagineer do? Because while I am a Disney fanatic, from my perspective, looking outside in, it's like Imagineering is so much more than just um, building an experience like from the architectural standpoint. From what you explained, Imagineering is the story and it's, it's much beyond. So explain to those who are listening in who have no idea what is an Imagineer and how did you fit into that world? Uh, it's a really great question. And as Imagineers, you get the question a lot. Uh, the really cool answer is that Imagineering is the mashup between imagination and engineering. So Walt Disney coined the phrase, and it really is this idea of left brain and right brain, technical and non-technical, uh, coming together to create something that really doesn't exist, a whole new genre, and that is the theme park. Um, and thank goodness he did, because so many skills are have been, you know, you learn when you're building this environment, yes. uh, this fantasy environment, story-driven worlds where characters live and grown-ups and kids alike get to come and, and be kids at heart uh, and do two things that human beings really need, and that's uh, escapism and play, right? We all like to kind of escape our own worlds and whether it's the world of Marvel or the, you know, the world of comic books or whatever it is, escaping and playing with a group of your friends, or your family is really important. It relieves stress. It, it's fun in our lives. And Imagineers, along with many other different types of creative um, people within our industry all over the world. But Imagineers uh, do that in a, in a multiplicity of ways. Of course, everyone, every Imagineer is in, taking part in telling a story. So whether you're in the creative group, you're a writer, an illustrator, a creative um, uh, executive or something, or you're in finance or you're in project management or, or props or lighting, there's 140 different disciplines in Imagineering. Uh, which is quite exciting for anyone out there who would want to play in the imaginary sandbox. There's lots of different ways uh, for you to do that. I think it's so important to be able to get a group of people together that in a company typically wouldn't feel like they work together and bring mm. them together under this umbrella of Imagineering. Not only does it create great work and output as a result, but I think something else that it does is it allows everyone to feel that their role is important, that they are part exactly. of the impact, the story. And that's something I really wanted to touch on today with you. You know, through your experience, the narrative design, really the, the core of all of this is a strong brand, developing being that brand that resonates, that gives somebody something to feel or look towards. And, you know, with all of your experience and the way that you've, you've seen the world differently through this lens of Imagineering, I'm sure that there were some moments that you were like, wow, this was so like challenging for me, but I grew from it and I learned a lot. What are some best practices that you learned in your time as an Imagineer that you feel business leaders would really benefit from? Wow. Uh, we probably need to extend the program by about an hour. <laughs> yes. Give um, me like one, <laughs> give me one magical one. Let's true, go from true. there. <laughs> um, I, I, you're right. You learn a lot of lessons and uh, having the opportunity to be put in leadership positions, uh, something I never sought. I just, I guess I ended up being good at managing people and, and leading uh, projects of, of, like I, like you said in the description, cross-functional, lots of diverse uh, people, thoughts, mindsets, ideas all coming together. And one of the lessons that I, I learned, I think that's really important is for me personally was every role that I had in Imagineering for 23 years, every new role was something that I had never done before. And uh, it was this blend of, uh, and I, I teach this to students um, and mentor people a lot and talk about this in coaching sessions is I was 50% scared out of my mind because I'd never done it before and 50% excited out of my mind. And what I, when I look back retrospectively and I think about that uh, mindset, that approach, it caused a level of focus for me 
and a level of um, absorption. You know, I had to be SpongeBob, learn every single thing that I could because I had accountability. I had people that I had to lead. I had a budget and a client that I had to, uh, you know, within Disney as an Imagineer, Disney is your client. And uh, I had the client that had expectations. So I I would have to give that as an example. Don't be afraid to take a risk on something that maybe you haven't done before. um, That's exciting. And that lines up with your core skills and passions that you have. Um, Taking that risk and kind of taking that leap oftentimes brings about rewards uh, that you couldn't have gotten in any other way. Yes, I completely agree. I feel that I'm in that season personally, that season of 50% scared out of my mind, but 50% super excited. But I think what it does is it accelerates growth. It allows you Mm. to think on your toes. You're forced to be adaptable. You're forced to, to, to change, you know, and part of that, I think I do so well with is my past theater experience, you know, that mentality of the show must go on. Right. Right. No matter what, no matter what, but I think that kind of also, um, is relayed in Disney culture too. Like this idea that the show must go on, you have to do it. And no one is, um, fighting each other to solve the problem and arguing. We're all coming together for a collective cause. I think that's a project management thing um, that, you know, can be problematic for teams is there is an issue that arises. And instead of working together to solve the issue, uh, we add red tape. We add processes or rules that, you know, hinder the the solution to the problem, right? So yeah, talk right. to me a little bit about that. How do we bring everybody together, manage the people to, to solve the problems and, you know, be creative about them too? <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's a, a hard problem to solve. Um, uh, if you reflect on the Disney company, there's, uh, they have several things uh, that really promote this uh, kind of environment, this ecosystem, if you will, that creates the the type of thing that we're talking about. Awesome storytelling, fan engagement, guest engagement, where you create fans that come back over and over, leading brand in the world. um, And so many more descriptions could be added to that. And if we just examine that uh, as, as companies outside of Disney, even outside of Disney's industry, you can learn a lot. And I would say one of the most important things that I learned and something that I tried to bring to my clients today through my company and consulting them is to have consistency from the top to the bottom, all the way through the company. You know, if they, if you have a vision and that vision um, has to incorporate people, right? Employees and consumers, then the vision has to um, lead people in such a way that they're excited to be a part of it, that there's room for them to not only contribute, but take risks to, to make it the very best vision that it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. That in itself is a magnet to, to teams who want to be a part of that. I, I want to participate. I, I don't want to just turn a screw on an assembly line. I want my unique you know, wiring, my unique giftings to be a part of making the vision the best that it can be. And um, so management has to allow the ability for its employees to perform in that way. It doesn't matter if it's a product or if it's a service. If you look at it from the perspective of um, I'm creating an experience, um, Pine and Gilmore talked to us a lot about that in this fantastic book called The Experience Economy, which I subscribe to uh, greatly. And if you would think of it, no longer as I'm producing a widget, a product or a service that I'm creating an experience, then everybody in the, in the company is focused on that. And you now focus all of your consumers on that. And it's no longer about just building a thing or about delivering a service. And I think that's something that Disney has always done really, really well. Um, And there's a consistency through, if they build a thing, then they operate the thing very well. Uh, They, um, their service is really, really well done. The quality of things is well done. They maintain things very, very well. And it's, it's a consistency all the way through. I think that it's so important what you said, the consistency of the deli- of delivering that service. And also it doesn't matter whether it's a product or a service. I always like to say that 
no matter what industry you're in, B2B, B2C, businesses are run by humans for humans. I always say that. And so in order to create connection, foster relationship, increase customer lifetime value, whatever the product service may be, you have to be able to really connect and deliver that service consistently as well. Because if it's all fluffy brand, but there's no backing to the service, then, you know, it can kind of skew either way. And um, I think I would love to hear from you regarding the um, storytelling aspect, though. Like, let's say the the brand that is listening to us or business leaders listening to us has a great foundation. They're consistent. They deliver a product. They do their job well, but they're not really connecting. They want to go to the next level. What, from your experience as a story, as, you know, from storytelling, um, how can you weave that in or help someone trying to access that for their business do that? Like, wh- where would you begin? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, what you're talking about is really defines the unique, which we can talk about later, the yeah. unique transition I made from Disney to what I'm doing now in my company. Mm-hmm. It's um, if you're in the themed entertainment industry, telling a story is, you know, like an adventure into the jungle or, you know, uh, going into outer space or perhaps it's aligned with a, an intellectual property. And that story is very much aligned with what you would see in a book or a film. It's got characters and that kind of thing. So it's understandable that businesses that don't do that think retail or, or um, online, you know, e-commerce or, mm-hmm. or a, a service of some kind. Very difficult for a company like that to look at Disney and say, I, I can't glean storytelling as a, as a primary uh, driver for my business. I can do service. I can do all the other things. So the bridge that I built between my theme park experience and um, the, the, all of the other segments of the global economy is that you tell stories about your why. If you're a Simon Sinek fan, I would highly recommend as you look at the book, start with why and not just look at it from the um, uh, personal perspective. How can, what's my why so I can be the best leader that I can be. But I use the principles of Sinek's golden circle to build brands for companies because every story that a brand tells about themselves, no matter what touch point that is for the brand, uh, a marketing message, a website, social media, their service, their platform, uh, uh, internal cultural building or human habits, all of that should be based on the company's why. Yes. So then the company is now telling why stories in every touch point across their brand that stays consistent and it inexorably aligns with the company's core beliefs and values. What I, what, what I know you're smiling. I'll, I'll stop talking. And the last thing here is Sinek's got a great quote in there in that book. And it's, it's that you want customers to not buy what you make, but you mm-hmm. want them to buy what you stand for. They, they want you to align with your why. That's when you get real fans, right? And that's when you have real brand differentiation. You're not at war with prices. If you sell shoes and you got to reduce your shoe sales to compete with brand B, or I make better shoes than you do, get out of that war and get into the war of building the best experience and telling the why story with your brand. That can't be supplanted in any other way. Right. Right. No. And I'm smiling because I love hearing this. I feel like I'm learning every time I I get to speak (laughs) to you. So it's, it's just me like being the SpongeBob of this conversation, soaking (laughs) it all in. I love it so much. I'm so passionate about it because you know, there are so many companies out there that, well, what the heck would a talking mouse have to do with my business? Why is it even (laughs) called bippity boppity business? But truly there are so many things that we can learn from from the branding and the storytelling elements. I think a company that does this really well is Duolingo. Duolingo mm. is, is technically an app. It's software, right? You would not right. think from the surface level that there would be a strong brand or any kind of fun content around it in, right. in any way, but they're doing it. So it is possible. Um, well, I, look at, Lu- I, I often use uh, Lululemon as another example, retail brand, or I use Apple <laughs> as yes. an example. I mean, could you ever imagine creating a machine that people actually have emotion, an emotional connection with? Yes. You don't wait in a line for three hours, four hours overnight for a widget. It's a machine at the end of the day. So those are brands that really did it 
correct. They created, um, I mean, Lululemon I love because it's not just about uh, gear to work out in, gear to sweat in. They actually convert their stores to yoga studios and Pilates. And so they're living what they're, what they're selling. And it's more than just uh, yoga pants and t-shirts and great shoes and, and shorts and all of, it's not just gear. It's a lifestyle that they espouse, that they live. I love that. Yes. And, you know, it ties so well into what we talked about briefly when we last spoke is studies uh, regarding what how millennials are interacting with mm. brands now. Um, you mentioned that you know, millennials aren't trusting companies unless there is a why. Um, people, you said people align and connect with your brand based on what you believe, not what you make. And this kind of innovative thinking, I think is what, you know, you said it encourages repeat sales and long-term customer value, but let's go deeper than that. Like why, why is it that way? You know, what, tell me more. Well, the, the two books that I mentioned, uh, The Experience Economy by Pine and Gilmore, came out in the late 90s. And um, uh, that was a critical time period because, uh, if you remember, year 2000 was the new millennia. It was the millennial kind of uh, generation that, that, uh, that came into play mm -hmm. as the largest consumers um, in that particular time period and still, and still are. They actually outspend every other uh, group now. Um, uh, generation, um, uh, the, the newer generation is actually now coming in Gen Z yes. and, um, uh, and the alpha is right behind them. But the, what, what really changed was that millennials would pay more for an experience than a thing, right. You know, buying a, a thing, a product, Gen millennials would rather spend money on an experience and to all the CFOs in the world, that's got to be incredibly frustrating because how do you, monetize how do you define how do you dissect an experience well that's what imagineers are really good at we know all imagineers on the planet know all creatives who work in in, in experience building uh what i call narrative experience design we understand that it's a a um a collection of elements that all uniquely come together within a point in time, each element doing its job to create and deliver a memorable experience. And um, when you start removing some of those elements, then you start diminishing the experience. And, and that's really hard for CFOs. And I've gotten in lots of very deep discussions with CFOs about this. Um, the other book that I mentioned also was Simon Sinek's Start With Why. I think those two books, if anybody wants to read anything that could help their business, I would 100% recommend those two books to begin with. There's a lot of others, but um, I think those are the two books that really helped inform my transition from working within one industry, um, the themed entertainment design industry, and taking what I learned and repackaging it in a way that it's applicable for today's businesses, right? Um, e experience in the economy is the next level, right? It is the differentiation. Um, creating an experience for a company, for their brand, is the way to really bring growth and um, uh, uh, financial security to your company. So what I do, I'll just say it this way very quickly, is um, there's three things, right? First, I look at the brand of the company. If it's a brand new company and they're establishing a brand, that's a whole nother process to build and create that brand. Uh, again, done that many times with companies. So brand. And then the next thing is the audience. What is the audience the brand currently reaches? What is the, the audience that the brand wants to grow into? And then the third and final leg of that stool is the uh, business objectives of the company, right? So to, to build a bridge between the brand and the audience and include the business objectives, what I do is create a story that's based on the brand's why. And that story, it becomes the mechanism that delivers the brand, brand equity, brand growth, uh, brand empowerment, um, that delivers on the audience, what the brand wants to achieve with the audience, and is the element that delivers on the business objective. So the story isn't just something you paint on the on the wall, on the business right. plan, and make it, make it all cute. It becomes the mechanism for delivering all of those elements. 
It's so fascinating to be able to not only, you know, say this is the story, but this is the objectives and here's how we're going to grow because you didn't mention, you, you mentioned not just identifying the target audience, you mentioned what the company wants to grow into changing and and being flexible as the years pass. Right. And I think that's something that, um, a lot of conversation is being had right now about how companies can change and adapt to uh, the current market, the current culture. I mean, things have changed significantly probably when, yeah. from even when you first became an Imagineer Absolutely. way back when, right? Oh yes. Light years. <laughs> Light years different. But I think what, in order to understand um, what the audience will grow into, you have to understand psychology. Psychology is part of that storytelling. And, you know, Absolutely. marketing and sales and business objectives, they they all play into it. But from your experience, where do you see the psychology aspect of the client experience come into play with what you've done? I think you said it great, right? We're dealing with um, today's business, right? We're, we're, we're always dealing with designing something, creating something or interfacing with humans. Um, it's, it's, I mean, AI, great. It's a great help. All of those things, building robots, absolutely. But the reality is, is we're still building it for humans to interact in. So when you build an attraction, for example, as an Imagineer for Disney, you don't just sit around the table thinking about what would be cool for us to do. Wow, you know, it'd be great as if we did this and this. And that happens, but you never lose sight of the audience that you're building it for. Um, Tower of Terror, for example, the objective was to build a thrill attraction to add to the very specific property of, at that time, Disney MGM Studios for the expressed point of building something for teens, right? There's an age group that was, that was, um, that the company was missing at that particular time, uh, at, at that particular park, and Tower was the solution to bring younger, young adults and teens into the park. Um, now, of course, we look back and we think, well, it's, it serves everybody. Everybody who can ride it and who right. wants to experience uh, <laughs> who that wants to goes... experience elevator trauma. It's fine. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You should have seen the Otis elevator executives when they asked them, "This is what we want our ride to do. We want you to build it." They're like, "We spent a hundred years trying to not have that happen in our elevators." Um, but I just, I just bring that up as a a, a point that yeah. you know, it it we there are specific demographics that you create for. And um, I mean, think of, think of Disney, right? I always say that Disney has the largest demographic on earth of consumers uh, from age four to 94 and the whole range in between. If you're designing a, a, a space that would accommodate four-year-olds, right? You've got soft play surfaces. You've got, uh, you don't want a lot of handrails in there where, where they're running underneath and banging their heads. Things are soft, etc. cetera. Um, it's fun. But then you put a 94-year-old in that soft surfaces are dangerous. That person could fall over. They need handrails, right? So just just two or three things I've picked out to illustrate the, the radical difference in my thinking. But Disney has to create environments that work for both of those and all the age groups in between and for people from all over the world, multicultural. So massively difficult um, demographics to design for, but yet there's success. It's done every day all over the world. The sun never sets on a Disney yes. theme park, right? It's it's all over the world. So it's done and it can be done. So that mindset, that psychology and in every interaction um, has been perfected and it can be perfected for your company, for your brand. Um, it just takes a level of focus to have the end goal in mind and have the audience that you're designing for in mind when you begin that way you're you have a destination in in mind i think that there are people out there that are probably listening that think oh well you know i haven't identified my target audience and i'm kind of you know appealing to everyone right now but is is there a case in which your niche can be identified by a thing a concept an idea and not just age i wonder yeah, I think, I mean, what I would recommend if, I think what you're saying is if if we were sitting with a startup right. and the startup said, we have this thing, we have this service, we have this, you know, um, you know, SAS, right, that we're building, right. um, we, 
we we want we think it's for everybody, but we want to explore it, right? That's that's what I think is really important is is you need to start somewhere. Usually, if you build one thing for everybody, it's usually not enough for somebody. Mm-hmm. So focusing in on that, you can always open the bandwidth for that later. But but zeroing in specifically on what the product or service, what the experience, hopefully you're, you're th- now thinking more in that way, what does the experience mean or who would this experience mean the most to? Because launching a product and getting customers is I think an antiquated approach for a business. Launching a service, launching a product, you should be launching an experience to a target audience that you then build as a fan base. The cool thing about having a fan base, that's why I use the term audience and not customer or consumers, because an audience loves what you do. They don't necessarily always love what you produce, but uh, they love what you do. They love who you are as a company. And if, they, if, if you make that connection with a group, an audience, then they will look at your product or service first before they look at others because you, they're your fans. And you'll get millions of dollars worth of marketing value because they're going to pass word of mouth, which is the best marketing platform that you can't really buy, right? Out there because you've made this connection emotionally with them and you've consistently delivered on that experience over and over and over. They're going to talk about that experience. I think that companies should evaluate their entire offering now with those filters and they should start with their employees first because you can build the best experience in the world but if there's not frontline employees to bring that experience to life you've lost or they're clearly not enjoying it when they're delivering the experience either then you're equally lost (laughs) yeah that erodes your brand i mean it just erodes your brand i'm gonna bring up a comment from the live here um Mm. i see theron langhorn he said, I wonder if retail brands are feeling this shift in experiential retail and how is it more desirable to their audience? I mean, what do you think? <laughs> well, Theron's a, a friend. You can imagine why. Um, not only yes. is he super cool, but man, super cool name, right? Um, no, I, I completely agree with you, uh, Theron. And one of the examples that was in the back of my mind as I was as we were talking was the pandemic lockdowns worldwide Um, what we saw happen to retail brands was quite amazing, right? Gaming, retail, uh, e-commerce just spiked, right? Billions and billions of dollars. But when the masks came off, the doors opened and people started leaving their homes and kind of going back into society, what what they all realized is it was a brand new place. So the question that I asked myself was, how many of those retail brands, for example, took all those billions that they were making and reinvested in their physical store in store experience, thinking about the psychology of their customers? Were they thinking about them in terms of audience, right? Wow, these people have been locked up like me, uh, you know, the company executive. And when they get turned loose again, they're going to be wanting something very different. Our primary audience is millennials. They want experiences. How many brands actually reinvested in their in-store experience, maybe shutting down some stores so that they could do this in specific areas to really roll out the red carpet for their, all of the customers that they've been, you know, building a relationship with online were they prepared for them? And the answer is very few actually did that. You know, they laughed all the way to the bank, so to speak. And I think fundamentally it really affected their businesses because millennials were like, Ooh, now you're these big corporate overlords that didn't, you know, you, you took all my we money. We know who you really are. Yes, exactly. How many we people, see through you know? your why it's not real. Exactly. <laughs> It's, and that's- so anyways, that's what I would say. And I totally agree that shifting to something more experiential, not only in retail, but in dining and, and every aspect will, will be a huge difference. In, in the book, Ex- uh, uh, Experience Economy, one thing that they say in there that I love is companies should think to themselves, how would I change my business if I charged admission? I love that mindset because yes. that that all of a sudden 
takes you in a different place, right? If I charged admission to what I do or to what I sell, how would I go about changing um, parts of my company? And would anyone even show up is the other thing. <laughs> you know what exactly. I mean? Is, is exactly. my offer enticing enough to get people to want to buy said metaphorical tickets, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Theron Langhorn, thank you so much. Theron's in the house, he said, for, for, for providing that Whoop. wonderful question. We got. I love when you guys comment. If you have any questions for our uh, guests, please leave a comment below. We would. He would love to answer them, and I would love to see what you have to say as well, too. Definitely. Um, I, I would love to switch gears just a little bit and, and talk more about, you know, your story, your experience. You know, the work you did at Disney, it was great, but I'm sure it was hard. I'm sure there were long nights. I'm sure there were stressful moments, you know. Sleeping when, under under my sleep. desk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not here to fluff feathers. Like, while I love Disney, I'm a realist. I understand that it's hard work and they bring together the talented people. But, you know, everyone is working together and doing their absolute best. And I'm sure there were moments when you were really facing a challenge. Maybe the 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 50%, I don't know what I'm doing, kind of came in and made you feel like, I can't do this. But when you did feel that way, how did you overcome it? And what did you learn from it? Um, really great question. And I love the, the, the realism, um, especially when I'm on with a, a host and we're talking about Disney, um, that you can't avoid the, the magical component of it. But um, I, I really respect the fact that you're not so blinded by the pixie dust that you don't realize some of the elbow grease that goes into it and the yeah. sleepless nights. And, and that, that's for everybody, not just the Imagineers who actually create it, but the operators who operate it, the maintenance people who maintain it. Uh, it, it really, it's that consistency I was talking about. It, if it only occurs in one group, if it was only in Imagineering, then it would still be a failure. If it was only in operations, it'd be a failure. Everybody has to come together. So I, I would say for me, there are lots of difficulties on many, many different levels. So, you know, operating in a, in a flow state uh, is where we, what we all really love. Uh, that's when your um, difficulty levels, um, your competency in what you're doing, the fidelity of your output, the collaboration with your team members. It's when everything is in this kind of flow, right? That's what we're looking for. And everybody, including yourself, has meaning. You feel meaning in, yeah. uh, in what you're doing. Um, everybody tries to achieve that and inadvertently, it always uh, is a goal that you're reaching. So I would just give you one example um, of, of a a project that was extremely difficult, probably today, uh, still the most difficult project I ever worked on, but the project I learned the most from, and that had to be um, taking downtown Disney and changing it into um, Disney Springs. Yes. Um, massively talented team, of course, uh, that I had a hand in selecting and uh, leading, but committed, dedicated, um, incredibly creative, uh, uh, disciplined people to be able to pull that off. Um, now you think about Disney as, you know, here's a, a truckload of money, whatever amount you want to think is big. Maybe a yacht uh, to, full of money. <laughs> a yacht full of money. A, a Hindenburg blimp full of money, right? I mean, an, attra an attraction these days is in the 300 to $500 million range. You know, if you yeah. think about something like a, like a Star Wars, you know, it's it, it it's a huge investment, so that's a lot of pressure and a lot of people. Um, but if you if you think about that, you're building that according to a Disney process. You're really only dealing with Disney people most times, most cases, dealing with Disney people, um, and the, all of the difficulties that you uh, encounter along that uh, route. When you take that mindset and apply it to Disney Springs, it's times a hundred. Right, because now you've got 90 plus tenants that are all coming to that space. They each have a brand, they each have their own individual design firms, um, they have their own marketing firms, they have their own construction companies, and everybody, uh, the place doesn't work unless those tenants build uh, and operate. So you have to create an environment that's uniquely Disney, but actually not Disney. 
right? We had so That's many different- insane. I never thought of it like that before. Just as walking, you know, because walking in as a consumer, <laughs> you know, I'm walking in, I'm going to the shops, I'm shopping around, everything feels cohesive. It's a great day. But I never realized <laughs> yes. that, yeah, there's like, oh, you did a great job with everyone that worked on it, literally. No, but seriously, to, to imagine that there's all of those brand entities and there's probably, there's like a million and 10 people you probably have to coordinate and work with to, to get that to happen. I mean, I feel like I recall downtown Disney not even being as expansive as it was. It was pretty basic. I felt like it was just like one kind of loop and then the loop yeah. evolved into a million things. Yeah, it was three <laughs> separate things that all played in their own way. They didn't really uh, flow very well together story-wise or, or just physical traffic flow. Yeah. Operationally, they were messy. The infrastructure, you know, the telephone lines, drains, all that stuff. They were three different. It was a mess. So... Um, one of the points that I wanted to make was we had quite a few tenants that we, because we had a, a steady flow of tenants all the time coming in, coming in, mm -hmm. coming in. We had to build an entire preview center. We had to sell the Disney magic. We had to deliver on the story before the design was done. We had to create all of that way in advance to tell the story and to uh, get people excited. And I can't tell you how many brands said, look, I, we're not really sure we want to open a, a space here at Disney Springs because we don't want Mickey and Minnie and Goofy and Pluto uh, outside of our storefront, you know, uh, people taking pictures and stuff. That's just not our brand. And we had to constantly say, no, that's that's not what this is. That's for our theme parks. This is different. Yeah, but it's still Disney, you know, the ears and, the, you know, yeah. so that's why I say we had to build a space. We actually had to take the design approach, the, the real standard imaginary design approach of telling a story in the Western world, it's very different in the Eastern world, in the Western world, in the Americas, right? Um, how do we tell a Disney story without leveraging all the tools that we know that we use every single day to tell Disney stories? And that was a really um, hard but good exercise to do in the very beginning. We had to kind of rebuild the design guidelines and the criteria for delivering a unique Disney experience without really the trademark brand stamp of Disney on it. And how do you create an environment where all of these other brands can feel that they have the space to project their own brand, but to do so in a way that's totally cohesive with the Disney brand. So anyways, that was the big challenge uh, for, for me personally, but for all of us on the project team. Ramsey Wood, I agree with what you said below here. It makes you smile to hear about Theron talk about D downtown Disney. I could hear about <laughs> it. I'm ready for the book on this, okay? So we can talk about it for so long. I do okay, want to- Okay, Disney um, Publishing. <laughs> yes, Disney Publishing. Okay, That's you. Have... They're talking to you. <laughs> um, well, I have a good question here from uh, Theron Squared, the second Theron, Theron Langhorn. <laughs> he said, Louis Vuitton is a well-established brand that's benefiting from experiential retail. But businesses that are just starting with no recognition are in a particular position due to lack of funds or notoriety. How do you approach new and upcoming brands to invest in an experiential and interactive experience? Awesome question, as always, Theron. Um, I think that when you have an audience, a global audience, that's generally hungry for experiences, they're always on the hunt for new experiences. And I think in general, when we're talking about the psychology of people, humans, I think that we have a first world uh, and maybe somewhat of a second world global uh, audience that tends to be a bit jaded in a sense that they're very, very well informed. I mean, every Blu-ray you buy has, what, two hours or three hours worth of content about how the movie was made. Mm -hmm. So you have so many people, just general audience members, who are really well versed in how things are done. And uh, from an Imagineering perspective, one of the hardest things for Imagineers to do, and all of us are very conscious of this, is to deliver genuine awe, genuine wonder. It just doesn't happen very much because it takes a huge effort to kind of deliver that. So how does that apply to Theron's question? I think it's creating experiences that don't exist, telling stories uh, in ways that don't exist, uh, borrowing from other 
uh, industries that maybe do th do things very very well, but that's not particularly in the industry that this company, this fictional company that we're talking about, is doing. I think that's a way to really get an audience's attention. Um, it's a way to um, invigorate an existing brand. Uh, I'm working with a 50 year old brand in the Caribbean that just did that family brand um, who really said, help us recreate, reinvigorate our brand or a brand that's just beginning. What's the What's their entree into the market, right? Where, where do they start? Where do they begin? Well, it should probably be with a splash. It should probably be with a story about their why. It should be about their heart. What do they hope to accomplish by starting this brand? That's building an audience of fans that doesn't have to necessarily be an experience, but it's about how do I represent the core reason that we want to be here? And if the core reason is we're here to make money, you're, you're you're not going to. You're not <laughs> you know? doing it right. You're just, yeah, you're not, <laughs> especially in a global recession and all these things. One thing to always remember is even in the Great Depression, right? People always forked up a nickel to go to a Laurel and Hardy movie or they went to a vaudeville show, right? Uh, for those of us that weren't old enough to understand that, um, their entertainment is, uh, is, like I said, escapism and play is critical, especially in hard times. Yes. So how do you take your brand and add that component so that people feel happy, people feel connected, people feel, yes. wow, I'm just, I'm just happy with my iPhone. You know, I just want to, I just want to sit here for it hours on my happy. iPhone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how can you create that, you know, with your brand? Well, speaking of entertainment and fun, I would like to switch gears to wrap up our lovely conversation today. We are going to do a random Disney rapid fire segment. Whoa, are you ready for round. this? Okay. Here, I put my seatbelt on. Okay. I'm good. Come on, everybody. Here we go. Off to question land. All right. So now we've gone to Disney World. <laughs> We're here at the parks. You know, you, you don't have to work there anymore. You get to enjoy it now, right? Yes. Tell me, what ride are you going on and what's lighting your inner child up to go like, yes, let's do this? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, I always get asked, what's my favorite attraction? And I, I have to say, to date, my favorite attraction is still uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye in Anaheim. I absolutely love it. It's phenomenal. Um, but because I'm in Orlando, where I would be going is probably Tower of Terror or maybe Rise of the Resistance. Rise of the Resistance for me, for sure. It blew my mind when I did it. Tower of Terror still terrifies me, even though I'm 27 <laughs> years old. I can't. And I'm still slightly terrified by Haunted Mansion as well, even though I'm a full grown adult. Don't ask okay. me why. <laughs> Next question for you. Um, you get to design a, um, a like a podcast right? An odd, an immersive podcast, right? For the purpose of some Disney initiative, right? Okay. You get to, you, you get to do the story. What is the story about? Is it a, is it a Disney character or is it a backstory kind of a thing? Oh boy. Well, I, I think I would probably not do it about a character or a person. I would do it about how optimism and storytelling can improve your life. That's probably what I would do. I would listen to it. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> um, tell me about the one of your earliest Disney memories. And uh, yeah. Oh. Um, well, we got to choose uh, between getting Christmas presents uh, with my mom and my stepdad or a trip to Disney World. So you can imagine which one we always chose, which was Disney World. So I have really fond memories of uh, going through Disney World with my brothers, with my mom, who had been ill for most of her life, and my stepfather. So um, that would probably be the my key memory there. Oh, that's amazing. Um, if you could be able to have any sidekick from any Disney movie come to life and be your real pal, which sidekick would you choose? <laughs> uh, probably Flynn Rider. Um, uh, uh, sarcasm is my mother tongue. So um, English took me quite a bit longer. So uh, I, I feel like <laughs> Flynn and I would be best of buds. 
I really want to have an Olaf in my life. I just want to hang yes. out with Olaf. <laughs> I yes, really do. That was, that was my second choice. <laughs> if I could, no, you can't. I mean, we can have both. We can have both. If you have a sidekick and I have a sidekick and we're all hanging there you out go. together. We can hang out right. together. That would be super cool. <laughs> Flynn and Olaf. Wow. Okay. That's that would be cool. an interesting room for sure. <laughs> um, what is a Disney park or activity or thing that you have not yet done that you would like to do? Oh, easy. Shanghai Disneyland. I would love to go uh, see that, experience the park. Uh, so many firsts. The team did such an amazing job. I, I would really love to see that, especially after living in Hong Kong for four years, living and working there uh, and being a part of helping the teams prepare for uh, for creating that. I'd, I'd love to go see the finished product. Send this man his ticket to Shanghai. He worked it. He, we're going to take him there. And when you go, you're going to bring me, okay? I'll document the whole thing. Good plan. Great. Good plan. Good good plan. Awesome. Well, Darren, thank you so much. I really appreciate My the pleasure. time that you spent being on the show. Um, for anyone listening who wants to learn more about, about you and wants to learn more about your story, how can they best do that? How can they reach out? Awesome. Well, I would start with uh, LinkedIn profiles, probably the easiest for business connections. If you're more of an Instagram fan, I do have Instagram. Um, I did spend quite a lot of time building videos on YouTube for the next generation of uh, experienced designers. So you can reach me there. I do have a website, the designers, creative studio.com. Um, and check me out in all those places. I'd love to connect with you guys. Before we wrap up, Theron, do you have any words of inspiration or pixie dust that you can inspire the next generation of, of leaders out there with? Yeah, definitely. I would just say don't don't give up, right? There, there's always going to be difficulties. There's always going to be speed bumps along the way. But if you're if you're in the process of telling stories, I mean, in the business of telling stories and building experiences, you know, the impact that you're having on other people's lives is really, really important. Um, affecting people in a good way and building optimistic places and optimistic storytelling cannot be underrated in our world today. There's so much bad news out there. Um, I would definitely say seek to bring light into other people's lives uh, with your own. Stay positive, stay focused, and um, and and you know you could sprinkle pixie dust in other people's lives. That's a good thing. That's amazing. Everyone, this has been Bippity Boppity Business Live. Thank you all for your comments and we hope you all have a magical day. <laughs> You've been listening to Bippity Boppity Business. Like what you hear so far? Leave us a review in Apple or listen to us anywhere you prefer listening to your podcast. Until next time, have a magical day.